Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 216 for October 1st, 2009. Listener feedback number 76. Security Now is brought to you by... Go to my PC. Skip the rush hour traffic and save time, money, and frustration by working from home with Go to my PC. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomypc.com/securitynow. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com/securitynow. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure and security-wise. Protecting yourself online with Mr. Steve Gibson, the king of security, the guy who discovered spyware, coined the term, wrote the first anti-spyware program, and has ever since been writing great free utilities for all of us to protect us, and for the last four years has been educating us. Episode 216. Hello, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. In our fifth year of broadcast excellence. And apparently no sign of slowing down because the industry keeps throwing new bizarre things <laughs> at us that are fun to share. So, oh, yes, I tell you, it's not getting any better. We got a good Q&A. Uh, our, 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 our listeners are really good at coming up with uh, questions for Steve, and he'll be answering those. Our 76th feedback episode. I'm sure we have secure. In fact, I know we have security news. Yep. In uh, just a little bit and probably some errata as well. Real quickly. Um, before we get to the errata, let me mention our friends at GoToMyPC. Who, who, it's really our friends at Citrix. We were, you and I, Steve, were talking. It was kind of fun about the good old days of uh, trade shows and, and the late lamented Comdex. Yeah, I remember when the text used to scroll up the screen. Yeah, great old days. <laughs> so uh, I was just I was thinking because you said Comdex really was... You know, it was the big computer show, which went out of business about four or five years ago. We're going to go to CES. That's why I asked you. And we're going to be broadcasting from there. But it's not oh, the cool. Same. Yeah, it's, cool. Not, it's not the same because Comdex was computers. CES is everything. Uh, but I remember, uh, it, as you said, you, you would hang out with, uh, you know, Gates and. Uh, and Balmer and, 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 and FleepCon. And, and I mean, lots of people who, guys. you know, who the contemporary PC industry has forgotten. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it reminded me of a guy that uh, I met, uh, that Gina Smith introduced me to. It, it probably was in 1996 or 97. Uh, Ed Yakabuchi. Do you remember Ed at all? Oh, of course. Great guy. I mean, yeah. one of the, he reminds me of Philippe Kahn, one of the just big, vibrant, exciting guy. Uh, he, he was the founder of Citrix. He, he actually was uh, worked for IBM. And I believe it was he, you know, it was the, 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 the joke at the time was that IBM wrote Windows NT for Microsoft while Microsoft was writing OS2 for IBM. They were kind of, they traded engineers. So he was on, he was working on the NT team. And while doing that really created, you know, learned about the, 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 the kernel and, and became an expert in remote access. He wrote the uh, original remote access uh, uh, stuff for uh, uh, RDP. Actually, I think Microsoft licensed RDP from his company, Citrix. That's Citrix. correct. Microsoft did get the original remote desktop code from, from Citrix. Citrix. Yeah. Citrix was the company, the remote access company. 
Uh, they've grown. They've expanded. They've, they've produced not only high-end enterprise solutions, but also consumer solutions. And that's where that's the heritage of this product, the uh, go-to-my-PC product from Citrix. It is the simply the best way for anybody to remote access a system. It's so simple to install and yet completely secure, completely easy to use. You could try it right now. If you go to gotomypc.com slash security now, we've got a 30-day trial for you. So you don't have to believe anything I say about it. You could try it yourself. If you've been nervous about remote access, you've heard us talk about security issues with RDP and other remote access solutions. Let me assure you, go to my PC from day one, written to be secure. Uh, 128-bit end-to-end encryption, so it's like a VPN using SSL. Uh, they use NAT traversal, so you don't have to worry about port forwarding or or DMZing or opening up your firewall. It's It absolutely is secure that way. Uh, and that makes it easier to use. PC World has given it their world-class awards so many times. Once again, best remote access software this year. And it's just so easy to use. Go to gotomypc.com slash security now. You'll have it installed in minutes. And now wherever you go, I'm going to Dubai next week. I'll be able to access my system. I can just log on to gotomypc.com, give them my secure username and password. It's completely safe, even if I'm on a hotel network or at a coffee shop. It's 128-bit encrypted. And I'm getting there, and I'm and it's fast. I'm sending and receiving email, access network resources. I use it here to check the streams, to update, to make sure we're online, all of that stuff. You're going to love it. I want you to try it right now. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Uh, absolutely free trial for 30 days. What do you got to lose? We thank him so much for their support. And at tip of the hat, I don't think Ed's there anymore. In fact, as I remember, didn't he start like a... a, a, a remember what he did that was a he was doing something with jets like private jets well i'm wondering why you're going to dubai you didn't you i didn't, didn't tell you that did i No. i am speaking at tedx dubai which is a great honor you know ted is the uh yes the big conference in long beach you're down your way right um, this is a they do a franchise so they're all over the world uh they had they just had one in toronto and when when uh giorgio uh wrote to me I don't say his last name because I don't, I don't want to mispronounce it. He's Italian, but he lives in Dubai. As a lot of um, uh, uh, people in Dubai are are uh, expats. Giorgio Ogania. Yeah, I hope I'm saying that right, Giorgio. Organized TEDx Dubai, and I'm going to be speaking there on the 10th. Cool. So Jennifer and I fly out Tuesday. It takes It's a long flight. I think it's 15 or 16 hours. We'll arrive. We'll leave Tuesday afternoon, arrive Wednesday night in Dubai. And, uh, but, uh, we're, I can't wait. I've never been there. I'm dying to see it. And then Saturday I speak and then Monday I fly back and I'll be here next, the following week. But so next week it'll be Alex Lindsay doing the show. Right. I've heard lots of things about Dubai. Like it's got 90% of the world's super tall skyscraper cranes because they're, they, they had to like ship all the cranes to Dubai to make the buildings, <laughs> the places growing so it fast. It was just the desert, you know, it was a very, it was, uh, it w- and they've just, you know, poured tons of money into it to make it kind of this global um, uh, business marketplace. They have the world's tallest building, the the, the um, Burj just open, like just open. So I'll be able to see that. I'll go up there. Yes, I think it is. It's just massive money. It's just yeah, money, it's money, 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 money. So I can't. It's gonna yeah. be very and fu- and really full of expats, people from all over the world. There, it's become kind of this. Um, you know, it's like the marketplace, the global marketplace. People just kind of go there. So you know, this is continuing in my my world journeys to see the interesting uh, new places to be. So I couldn't say no. I can't wait. Yeah, cool. It's gonna be fun. 
So uh, let's let's uh, should we do the uh, security uh, news before we get go too far? Oh, of course, huh? of okay. course. Um, uh, many listeners wrote in um, to bring my attention to Carbonite's um, license agreement, and I wasn't sure whether we had gotten carried away in talking about the level of security and encryption that they impl- that they apply. But, you know, they're a sponsor. They they have been a sponsor yeah, they, of the they, show. They told me, and I'm going by what they told me, that they told me that they used AES-256 on their on uh, the local machine and then SSL to upload. Is that not the case? Well, what's the case is that they can decrypt it. Really? And that's what's important is okay. that they are, their license says that if they believe there's child pornography ah. um, or if they're uh, under a government subpoena, uh, for whatever, or if they need to for technical support reasons to make sure their stuff is working, they have the ability to decrypt the data. Now, I assumed that because one of the features is you're able to log on from elsewhere on the internet and get access to your backed up files. Right. Well, that that means that they have to be able to decrypt it they must and have send the key. it. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to make sure that we were clear that. That you know about that caveat. I mean, the 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 benefit is for a certain class of user, it's transparent and in the background and easy, and it you know it protects you from your hard drive cracking or crashing rather. But you know, it it is the fact it is the case that they ha- they would have the ability. You know, they have the key, the encryption key used for your data being stored, and a bunch of our listeners who are on the ball, and of course, that's right why on. they're listeners. Right on, yeah. Um, you know, checked that and said, whoa, wait a minute, just make sure that, you know, that that is... So I correct, I'll correct myself, because I went too far. I, I, they didn't tell me that. I was just reading into it. But of course, well, you're right. They would have had, they would have to have the key to be able to send you a clear copy. If, exactly. They would, ha- yeah. you know, if you log in somewhere else, then, right. they, then they would have to be able to do it. And it's interesting, their agreement says that if you do that, then your data will be sent in the clear. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, why? I would think that would be SSL encrypted so that it wouldn't transit in the clear. But their paragraph 15 at the bottom does state that if you access your data from another location other than your main machine, then it won't enjoy the encryption that, hmm. they, impl- that they normally apply. Hmm. And so you acknowledge that, you know, you're... You're allowing that to happen, so yeah. I'm, I mean, I would check and see if it's HTTPS. It may still be HTTPS. You know how lawyers are; they want to uh, hedge everything yep. just in yep. case, cover themselves. So, um, you know, I'm, and and I think probably, I would I would bet they, for legal reasons, don't want they do want to be able to respond to subpoenas. But this is if you're worried about that, that's why you use TrueCrypt or something else where you well, only you have the key. For what it's worth, yes, you I could mean, also TrueCrypt I... before you upload it if you want. Uh, no. Because their their system runs autonomously, they they explain that ah. that they look at the files, they examine the headers. I mean, they're they're looking into your data on your machine to for like you know make sure the file size is right. Look look for right. changes. They may be doing checksums well, or they'd something. Have to do that. You're right. Otherwise, they wouldn't know if it's new or not. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. so they're doing autonomous you know in the background work. Um, I'm. You know, I'm a jungle disk user because, you know, and, and we have the author on the show. Right. I know exactly how it works where only I have the key. So Amazon w- 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 with their S3 data storage service, they're, you know, they're storing 
completely pseudo random data that they have absolutely right. that is completely opaque to them. So right. I'm comfortable with that, but it's a more techie and a not an automatic solution. So again, I think there's it's certainly also more expensive. You pay you pay the price if you have the same amount of data. You're going to pay more. So yeah, I, yeah. I think you know I, th- there's certainly a class of user for whom Carbonite makes absolute sense. So I think, but I just I did want to respond to our listeners who you know and make it very clear that you know it would take a court order, but that you know that can be done at their end. Well, I found I learned this week that uh, uh, the same thing is true of Twitter. We had a, a little incident with somebody posting uh, 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 death threats on Twitter, and uh, tried to get the information. Uh, I was just hoping I could just send a note to Twitter saying, uh, you know, just tell me if the kids in, this this person's in California, so I know if I should worry. And they said, no, you can't. We need a you need a court order. So uh, we we contacted the local police. He's getting a court order, but. Um, and that's how it's, I guess that's how it's supposed to be. I think that that's kind of the normal circumstance for most Well, and for, for, for example, once upon a time, years ago, there was someone who I knew was nearby uh, sending uh, denial of service noise right, at, right. at GRC. Yep. And so, I, you know, I, I could tell from their IP that they were a local Cox Cable customer. And I had some contacts here with a local FBI. And I said, hey... You know, there's, I found these four machines. I'm sure it's not anybody who owns the machine. They just have some right. junk on their machine. Right. And, you know, and so they, they, they had to produce a subpoena to call, to allow Cox to tell right. them the owners of those IPs. And then they called and said, Hey, you know, we, we've got a person we work with who would like to come take a look at your machine. You probably don't know it, but it's infected with some stuff. And wouldn't you like that fixed? And so they said, oh, my goodness, we had no idea. <laughs> you know, it's funny, too, because the, the kids were complaining they could no longer burn CDs because the machine uh, was, yeah. so, it was so overrun <laughs> with junk. I mean, it took like an hour to boot because oh, it was man. it was the war of the malware. It's like who was going to you know play king of the hill inside the machine just every time it booted. It was a, it was a disaster. And they were using Kazaa back in the day. They were like, well, we like free music. I was like, oh, yeah, I bet you do. Well, very, uh, yeah. And, in fact, I got the, we also talked, I talked to the FBI in San Francisco, too, so. Yeah. Because it's, a, I guess if it's on the internet, it's, they count it as interstate or uh, a federal thing, despite mm, its nature. Yeah, well, and in general, I mean, the the thing to look at is that, that, these companies that have records, they they want to be protected against their customers suing them for disclosing the information. So, for example, in my case, even though Cox would have happily, I mean, it, it wasn't like they were trying to hide the information, but they have an agreement with their customers to maintain their customers' privacy. So, so the company has to ask for the, has to literally say, please make us give you this data. Right. You know, they, right. they they have to ask to be compelled to do it so that they're able then to say to the customer, privacy. look, you have privacy. We, yeah. we were subpoenaed. Right. We had no choice. And 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 again, for example, that's why this paragraph 15 of the Carbonite Agreement says, we, if we are subpoenaed, we will turn over your data. Just, you know, FYI. So um, the top of the news is, for me, very exciting. Yesterday, which is or day before yesterday. Um, given that the podcast is um, released on Thursdays, that is to say Tuesday, the 29th of October, Microsoft Security Essentials was released. That's, and you can just put Microsoft Security Essentials into Google or it's Microsoft.com slash 
security underscore essentials. And this is the awaited first Microsoft free antivirus and anti-malware scanning and monitoring, you know, overall prevention utility from Microsoft that I'm very excited about. I like the idea that it is small and lightweight. Uh, I like that it's from Microsoft, so I have the sense that it'll integrate properly with Windows and won't be in the way. It's not going to be jumping up and down trying to get my attention and reminding me that it's you know it's time to to you know re up my license or anything. Um, all of the reviews that have been done so far have been positive. Having watched it, the one thing I can say is in full system scan mode. Um, it makes Spinrite look fast. Um, it, it is very slow. Now, its speed is a function of the type of file it's looking at. I've noticed that it just whizzes through a block of, of JPEG image files. Boy, when it hits an XE or a DLL or something executable, it spends some time. Now, I think that was the right choice because... First of all, you're not having to do a full system scan all the time. You want to do, I would say, that once when you first install it. Because then it's able to look at changes and new things coming into your system and check them incrementally, in which case it's not a problem. The benefit of it being so slow is that it is being thorough and it is not generating false positives. You can imagine with Microsoft being as security well, as customer uh, support shy as they are, you, you know, we, we've talked many times how, unfortunately, Microsoft leaves things turned on by default because they don't want people calling them, asking them how to turn them on. So they're just on. Well, you, the last thing Microsoft wants is a technology which is going to be generating false positive alerts. And many of the looser, faster heuristic technologies do have the problem of generating false positives. It, it, every few months, um, you know, our support uh, email starts getting reports that some random piece of my freeware, which hasn't changed in a decade, <laughs> suddenly has spyware in it. It's like, no, it doesn't. Do you think it, there's something about your software that lends itself to that? Or what, why No, I hear, I hear about it from everybody. Mark Thompson has the same everybody, thing happening. Okay, yeah. okay. The problem is these scanners are trying to be very fast right. and they're trying to, you know, they're, they're trying to be sensitive enough, but not too sensitive. Microsoft has clearly taken a different approach where they're, you know, really f affirmatively identifying rather than just sort of scanning across the top and saying, Oh, look, this yeah. might be a problem. They're very, it's a much slower scanner than, uh, than most. I mean, oh, it's, it's painfully e slow. Even, like the said, quick, makes, even the quote quick scan is slow. Like I said, it makes Spinrite look yeah. fast. Yeah. You know, Spinrite is known for yeah. taking its time and being thorough. Yeah. And and this thing is really slow. But, you know, again, you would do the full deep scan, I would say, once upon installing it. Then it, it you can set it up with a schedule and it is watching your system on the fly. I'm I'm just excited about this because I've got friends who for the last couple of months I've said, you know, like someone will buy a computer and say, hey, I got some notice that Trend Micro wants to bill me $39.95. I say, okay, hold, just hold on. In a couple of months, there's going to be something from Microsoft, which is free, 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 free. Now, we'll remember that this is only for the client 
machines, not server platforms. They have their their full strength commercial product from which this is descended for their server platforms. But for all of us running, you know, XP and Vista and and Windows Seven, um, you know, here's I think going to be a great solution. Now, I've only looked at it at this level at this point. I've got the next four weeks of security now uh, shows mapped out. So, um, and in fact, we're going to have John Graham coming come on in oh, three good. weeks. Oh, great! And and talk about in great detail JavaScript which he knows inside and out. And he gave a presentation about it in a recent virus uh, conference. So I said, Oh, John, we, you know, we, you know, Leo and I need to have you on. So he's agreed to do that. Fantastic. And so it'll be the, the week after the Q and a following that one, I will have had time to really spend a lot more time and we'll do certainly a podcast about Do you this. think this is going to put uh, the commercial antiviruses out of business? I can't imagine. I mean, why would anybody, of course, there have been free antiviruses for a long time, and that hasn't put the commercial guys out of business, but this was yeah. from Microsoft, you know? And I, you know, we, for example, uh, there really isn't a commercial competitor for Internet Explorer. There are free competitors for Internet Explorer, but not a commercial browser. It'd be, I think it'd be, you'd be, you'd be hard to sell one, um, you know, for, for money. Um, I think this changes the game. I think that it's Microsoft gave everybody a long run that is in the AV world. But from if this is as good as it seems to be and it doesn't cause problems and it updates multiple times a day, it uses, you know, the current connected always um, model. Um, I just I know that that it's what I'm going to recommend to all of my own friends who are you know, who I just sort of try not to get involved with their computers because I don't want to be, you know, their go-to guy, but, but, you know, they know they should be doing something. And I think just, this just solves the problem. So, so I would say if a person has an existing relationship with an AV company, they're comfortable with it, they like it, they've gotten to know it, they know its quirks and, and so forth. They may be intended, they, they, they may be inclined for the sake of inertia just to stay there. But I would be surprised um, if a new machine, um, you know, started to try to charge you money for the AV that was pre-installed and, you know, for 90 days and then it wants money from you. I'd be surprised if people didn't say, oh, wait a minute, you know, is that what I should do? Or should I just say, remove this and install Microsoft's free one before long, then the word will be out that Microsoft provides this microsoft has solved this problem and and i i think that changes the game yeah right well good i mean who who better to than microsoft and i like it because it's lightweight i mean now here i am with my cookie manager that the only thing it does you know my little permit cookies extension for firefox is it just brings up a little lame little dialogue that says allow or disallow i mean that's all i want so i'm i always prefer a tight minimal solution and from what I've seen, that's what Microsoft has given us it, because because they're not having to compete with with the major AV players. You know, I just think I, I look at, for example, how Zone Alarm or Zone Labs destroyed Zone Alarm by having to compete with Symantec and their Norton suite and had you know had to put everything but the kitchen sink. In fact, I think maybe that's an option in, in the firewall. <laughs> it's just it, they ruined a good yeah. personal firewall. And it just became a horrible thing. 
So, you know, I, I well, really there, like there, the there, there's 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 um two parts, I guess, to a to an antivirus. One is the scanner, usually doing that by signatures. Right. And the other is uh, heuristics where it's looking for bad behavior. Does does this do both of those? Don't know yet. Um, See, that's the problem. We don't know, know how good the scanner is. We don't know how sophisticated the heuristics are. I'd like to see some tests on that. Although it's very hard to test, of course. Well, a lot of tests have been done. Oh, they have. And Microsoft okay. has come out on top. Oh, good. All right. I mean, it's like as good as anything else from everything I've seen. That's all that matters. I know. I, I think it's a win. So Where did, did they want- get this? Is this a rewrite of OneCare of the giant antivirus that they bought? Or is this yes. something? It is. It, 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 it's their... Um, it's their, it's a, it's a, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to characterize it. Not really a rewrite. It's, it is the, the engine behind their commercial product, okay. their, their, you know, their mainstream commercial product. And so they spun out this free one after proving the technology that's like, okay, we got it nailed. Now we're confident that we can, you know, cause they recognize that it was going to be a hit. Right. You know, the, they opened the beta and it's so they, and they were, they were providing 75,000 downloads and they closed it partway through the first day yeah. because it just, it just, everyone went nuts for it. Yeah. And, you know, I've been waiting for it. I'm, I'm excited. I think this, this is, this changes the game right. in the same way that, that, for example, that Microsoft having a really good firewall in their products do that. Now their firewall does not do outbound monitoring. So some would argue, well, it's not really good because it doesn't do that. But it's like, well, if you're careful about not letting anything in, then you probably have the security you need. And this will help prevent things from getting in. It makes sense. They'd release this right uh, as it is a couple of weeks before the release of uh, Windows 7. Yeah. Uh, they've got it now in any pretty much a complete security suite. Windows 7 implements uh, user access control and, and, and uh, other security features. It sounds like that 7 might be really... Uh, the Holy Grail, which is a version of Windows that just is not prone to this stuff. I hope. We hope. Well, to hear to hear Paul talking about it was it wasn't Paul. It was a Mac person who was saying of Windows Seven that this was good enough that you know he was kind of finding himself thinking, "Wow, I could actually use this." Oh yeah, I love it. I mean, yeah. I, I'll probably still use a Mac as my personal computer, but I yes. love Windows Seven. I'm, I'm, I think it's the best version of Windows they've ever done. Yep. And, uh, and you know, a thing to remember is that the key really to, to, to protecting against infections is widespread antivirus use. It's like vaccination. The more people that are running antiviruses, that damps down the spread of the antivirus, right? Very so, good point. So, because it, it is machines that are infected that, that are actively working to, to infect others. Right. So by giving away, I wish they'd install the darn thing. I guess they feel like they can't do that to their partners. But, you know, it should come with this. Just give it time. This always starts this right, way, right. and then it'll just be built in. It'll like, just be, you know, like, look, we've got, you, you can't not have automatic updates now. You have right. to fight Microsoft, you right. know, to get control of that. And look They're what just, a boon service pack 2 was for XP because it turned on the firewall. Right. That in itself was a, a huge improvement. It was, it was everything yeah. just to block yeah. that. I yes. think this will be comparable to that. I hope. I think so, too. This yeah. is This is really big. The only other security news I had, it was a, it was a quiet week, was just to, um, a little tiny mention. This is not a big deal at all, but I know that the VLC media player is popular um, for a lot of users oh, who yeah. like to have a, a third-party, more uh, format, 
expansive media player. And there are a bunch of uh, multiple buffer overrun vulnerabilities that are ex- that exist in everything up to and including version 1.0.1. So anyone using VLC, I mean, again, I don't, I don't even think that the attack surface is very big on this. Who's going to you know create a piece of media specifically hoping that you're running it under VLC Media Player? But I just did want to mention that there is an update to that. Otherwise, uh, it's been very, very quiet on the security front. I'm sure in a couple of weeks we will, you know, when we get to the second Tuesday of October, uh, things will pick up and we'll have some more news. But uh, that's it for now. That's good and news. I like that. But I had one really fun little short uh, spinrite story uh, that, that caught my eye. Actually, I, I encountered it just this morning when I was running through the mailbag looking for our Q&A questions because the subject was spinrite saved our lawsuit. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, there's one I haven't heard before. And so and he asked me to leave his name out if I read this on the air. So he said, hi, but he's located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He said, hi, Steve. Thought I'd say how awesome Spinrite is. I needed to copy some .pst files, which is really interesting, too, because uh, my homeowner association was sued by a bunch of homeowners who were disgruntled, and all the members of the board were using Outlook. And they all came to me because I'm unfortunately I had been identified. I'd been uncloaked as someone who understood computers and they were, they were all needing, you know, the attorneys all needed everyone's email dialogues that were related to the last X number of years of their service on the board. And so I was like, Oh, okay. So I had to figure out how to do that. And so he said, I needed to copy some dot PST files from the CEO's laptop for some discovery. Our lawyers wanted. When I tried to back up his main file, I kept getting a CRC, cyclic redundancy check error. After working the lump out of my throat, I tried creating another .pst file to copy the email into, but that failed with the same error. So I pulled out the Spinrite disk. I know management gave me a hard time when I needed to buy four licenses, because the way that works is, uh, a single license allows a, the licensee, the user, to use it on any machines that they own, any machines and hard drives. But the we we, we ask people to have four licenses for a like a, we call it the corporate site license to then use it, for example, on all the machines within a within a corporation. And so he says, but I told them it was worth it, and that and that it is a good product. Thank goodness I was right. After running it on level two for an hour. The original file copied without any problems. Thank you so much. P.S. Please don't use my name on the air if you read this. That's so, great. Thanks for the uh, positive feedback. Good news. As Spin always. Spinrite saves the day. And in an hour this time instead of a year. Yeah, we should we should mention that. You know, it, it, the time varies depending on how bad the drive is, right? How What, what kind of shape the drive's in. Yes, it can. It In fact, it's funny, too, because Spinrite estimates, continually estimates, Right. How long how much longer it has to run based on how far it's gotten given how much time it's had so far. So it assumes that the whole drive is going to be exactly like what it has seen so far, which is often not the case. It it's very often the case that the drive may have some problems at the beginning, which is why it's, you know, blue screen of deathing and having, you know, can't get booted or 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 whatever. But then after working through those it just takes off like a bat out of hell. So people say, wait a minute, it says it's going to finish 
in the year 2020. It's like, no, calm down. Uh, you know, it's probably just hit a rough spot right off the bat, right. which has caused it to project its completion time as, you know, not in your lifetime. But it'll, it, you know, as soon as it gets past that, it fixes its estimate and then starts getting much more accurate. Good. So that's yeah. good. Well, uh, we're going to get to 10 of your questions. We've got some great ones in just a second, but I do want to mention audible.com. Have you watched the new uh, the new Flash Forward yet? Are you, you know, interested in this show? I don't think so. I saw the previews and it's like, eh, and and I tried to watch Defying Gravity for a while, which yeah. was, you know, the summer sci-fi show and it's like, eh, this is just too much soap opera in space for me. I'm so I'm not a big as you know, and I, we've talked about this before. I'm not a big fan of uh, sci-fi on TV. I just feel like they never give it the the budget or the time that it needs. Oh, and except for Stargate. Fringe, I know you like fringe, fringe, fringe. fringe. No, I will oh. watch that when that comes out on DVD. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> and we have a new Star Trek, a new Stargate this Friday. In fact, I'm glad I saw you that. Yeah. yeah. Stargate universe. I know nothing about it, but it is premiering this Friday, the day after the podcast. So we should let all of our listeners know. I'm sure they do now that the Stargate universe, which is, you know, the, the Stargate franchise I've really, really enjoyed. Um, it's a little cartoony sometimes but but fun but oh fringe is just always delightful fringe is kind of like x-files right yeah it's very much so in fact it's funny in an episode last week the premiere episode of this new season they they were there was a senate uh finance committee meeting where they were you know we're going to cut off the funding for the fringe division and the guy said he said you know we've spent so much money in these x-files and this fringe division. I thought, <laughs> I thought that was really great. That's a nice touch. Yeah. I like that. That's a really nice touch. Well, the reason I brought it up for those who do want to watch uh fast, what is it? Flash forward. I guess the, the plot of this is that uh, humanity goes to sleep and just has like a vision of 20 years ahead of time and then comes back. And now yeah, everybody all, knows what's going to happen for the next 20 years. Everybody in the world has a two and a half minute blank out where they see into the future except some people apparently see nothing and that's they're worried well, well does that mean i'm, I'm not going to be around in there right. or you know, right. what I ain't gonna. Yep. well it's based on a novel and see to me if you get inspired by the show and you want to and you you know you say oh I, I, you know i like this i say read the novel because oh, it's always going to be better i think it's always going to be better yeah i mean i can't think of anything where the where the original book that it was based on isn't better now i haven't read this yet robert j sawyer uh wrote the original uh flash forward the novel and the reason I bring it up is because it is now available brand new on audible.com. So if you are an audible listener, you might want to check it out. If you're not, I got a way you can be and get this book for free. Audible is the bookstore that we talk about all the time. The online audio bookstore, 60,000 titles, great stuff. And I know a lot of you are sci-fi fans. So audible is a really good place to go. For science fiction, I you know I couldn't have said this when I first started using Audible in two thousand one, and I've been I've been a very happy customer, a two book a month customer since then, over three hundred books I've read on Audible. Uh, they didn't have a great science fiction selection, but I know the guys at Audible now that I've met them are big sci fi fans, so they've really beefed it up. They've even created something called Audible Frontiers, where they record uh, classic sci fi that's never been recorded. So now you have a huge selection. Including, and I, I, I don't know if they, this is, I don't think it's an Audible Frontiers recording, Robert J. Sawyer's Flash Forward. So here's how you can sample Audible. Try it. Get your first book free and see if this is for you. I think if you listen to podcasts, it probably is. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. That's our special page just for this show. You could sign up for the gold account and now your first book is free. In fact, you get to keep it even if you decide not to stick around. So 
It's free and yours to keep forever. AudiblePodcast.com slash security. Now, I always like to recommend a book, but don't feel like you have to get this one. There are, like I said, plenty, 60,000 different books, including a huge selection of sci-fi. If a Flash Forward intrigues you, I, I'd like to read this because I love the premise. I don't know about the TV show, but I love the premise. Uh, AudiblePodcast.com slash security. Now, give them a try. I think we know you'll love Audible as much as I have. It saved my life in my commute to San Francisco for 13 years. Oh, man. And uh, it saves my life now when I'm in the gym. I love it. Audible it's podcast. What, it's what's made you so smart, Leo. Well. Just absorbing all this information. I, You know, as somebody who does like to always learn, yep. um, it's been a source of frustration to me that as I get older, I, I don't have as much time to read as I'd like. And, frankly, uh, once I get in bed... I fall asleep. I used to read in bed. I fall asleep. So uh, Audible's great because I listen. You know, I even listen while I'm just driving across town. Or just every time I have a moment in the car or at the gym, I just plug it in. And you get through. I just finished a 30-hour book. So you, you, you believe it or not, just 15-minute increments, you can read a lot. And that's, yeah, it's part of the secret of how I stay at least in touch with the world and read the stuff I've always wanted to read. Uh, we thank them for their support. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. I have for you in my hands a passel of questions. Are you ready, Mr. G? I am. All right. Starting with Brian Dort from Alpena, Michigan. Brian says he's got some news about PayPal's multi-factor authentication, which we have spent many, many moons talking about. Stephen Leo, I'm another longtime listener since episode one of Security Now. Also a happy spin-ride owner. It has saved many hard drives for me. I now have a USB thumb thumb drive with Spinrite loaded on it. Oh, that's a good idea. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, it, it, uh, Spinrite will set up a USB thumb drive as a, as a bootable drive, and then you can put any other files on it that you want to, but when you boot that thumb drive, Spinrite just takes over and runs. Brilliant! Yeah. A couple of years back after episode 103 on the uh, PayPal security key, that football that we talked about, I ordered one for myself and immediately started using it. By the way, I, just a side note, I gave the football to, my, to our, uh, our uh, business manager. So she has she has it now. Good. She's got the football. It's like the atomic football. <laughs> Since then, it's worked perfectly until one recent day. I pressed the button to receive my token and nothing happened. My assumption is the battery died. No worries, though. I can log on to PayPal, answer a few questions, and order another. This time, emulating the master. I think he means you, Steve. I think he does. I ordered three with the intention of placing two in the freezer for future needs. <laughs> well, they're only five bucks each. Why not? To my surprise, when they arrived, the dongle was not to be found. Instead, a thin credit card size security key was found. It has a circle that says press on the front, along with an e-ink type of display that shows the number. I'm going to pull mine out because I have the same exact thing. I know As do I in my wallet. Yeah, I know what he's talking about. Um, At first, I thought this was a great thing. It fits in my wallet easily, and I usually have my wallet uh, with me. More than I have my keys with me. Um, however, after using this new format for a short period of time, I'm convinced that PayPal's made another mistake. My first one stopped working after about one month, probably due to me sitting on the security key while it's in my wallet. The second one continues to work, but one day PayPal wouldn't even recognize it. In fact, when I called PayPal, the customer service rep said it wouldn't work because I didn't buy it from PayPal, even though I did. In fact, their logo is plastered on the front. She sent me the new security key, and I'll try to get this one working. I asked about the football-shaped dongle that used to be available and was told 
they don't sell them anymore. Only these new uh, credit card formats. I hope you and Leo can. I hope you and Leo get back to reality sometime soon. Okay, I don't know what that means. <laughs> can you care to explain? I've been using this, but I got this one. This is the VIP thing that you and I have talked about from from uh, Verisign. So that, but I presume that's what PayPal is now distributing. Something like this, right? Um. Yes. Um. Uh. I thought this was interesting. Apparently, what happened is that um, the footballs are dying and the batteries are, as he ah. says, are dying. Now, I'm, I have one of each and I've got the football next to me, which I use um, every couple of days. Now I'm a little anxious about whether it's going to die because that would be a problem. Um, although I do also have the credit card format. Now, remember that the football... The, I think the problem with the battery life on the football is that it has a clock in it, which is running all the time, right. even when we're not pressing the button. Pressing the button basically just causes it to perform a little calculation based on the current time of day and then display the code, which is valid for 30 seconds. And it changes every 30 seconds. The credit card approach has the advantage of consuming zero power. And even when it so when so when you press the little press here button, it briefly fires it up, and it produces an incremental next code, which is not based on time, but which is based strictly on a cryptographic sequence. Okay. So there's a counter, which is which is driving an a cryptographic algorithm based on a secret key, which it knows, and which the authenticating agent. At the other side, and Verisign is behind all of this. Verisign is is the is the technology that PayPal uses, and Verisign provides the the, the gateway. So this is exactly the credit card that we've talked about before. Um, I've never had mine die. Mine's in my wallet too. When I take it out, I notice it had, does have sort of a slight curve to it, and I think, well, okay, it seems to be working just fine. So anyway, I just wanted to apprise our listeners of the fact that uh, that that's what's going on. That that PayPal has apparently backed out of of the football that we've talked about and and enjoyed and uh, in favor of this credit card probably because it's got a, a greater lifetime. Right. You no, know, that this little clock is running in the football whether you're using it or not. Whereas the credit card um, probably lasts many more years. I've been sitting on this for a long time. I keep this in my wallet and the, the credit card, and it's been pretty reliable. So, yeah, I do too. Yeah. But we got ours, we got, well, I guess this is the same way. Ours say VeriSign, not PayPal. And you can use it with PayPal. So maybe that, that, that's another solution. People might want to go to the VIP program at VeriSign and get that one and use it with PayPal. You can use that one with PayPal. Not with eBay, oddly enough. Yeah, it is odd. I don't, I'm not nope. quite sure how they're hooked together. <laughs> what PayPal's been doing lately, which I prefer, frankly, is sending me a text message on my phone. So you can add a cell phone to your authentication means and have it, and then when you log into PayPal, it'll say, well, what do you want to use? Your football, the card? I now have three devices, football, the card, or the cell phone, and now I just always say cell phone. Just send me a text message, because I always have it with me. Right. And that works fine. Right. Maybe that's in, in, in the long run. In fact, before your football dies, set up your cell phone to do that. Well, and what's interesting, too, is if somebody were to choose that, who was trying to pretend to be you and log on to PayPal... I'd get a you'd notice. Re- you'd get a call. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, wait a minute. Why am I receiving a confirmation code from PayPal? Uh, There's not I'm much not you can do about it. Right Somebody's, uh, I get, 
at least once a week a uh, French language email from somebody trying to get my my Gmail account because my name's French. And obviously somebody thinks that's their account, even uh, though it's not. Right. And I must drive them. I'm driving them crazy. I keep sending an email. I never get it. <laughs> yeah, because it's the wrong email. I'm getting it. And so it is a warning. But what are you going to do? Question number. Let's see. Uh, oh, I jumped ahead there. Wait a minute. Hold on. Question number. That, yeah. Oh, no, you didn't. You jumped ahead. I did. You went from one to four. <laughs> Unless I've made a terrible mistake. Oh, I see what happened here. I got a page two. I mean, I have a, a question two. My pages are all messed up. Huh. Question two, Zane Killingsworth. Is that correct? Yes. From Dawsonville, Georgia. Wants help securing a new PC. He says, hi, hello. I'm a young PC enthusiast who's getting a new PC in the near future, and I want help with what security software I should get. Well, I think we know, we now know what the answer is going to be, but I thought I was fine with Norton's 360 <gasps> until, I, until I started re- putting a lot of files on my desktop and read the book Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. I was so shocked by my lack of security that I tried to put paranoid Linux on my PC. I didn't know there was such a distro. That's funny. But since the book used a version of it on a future Xbox, I thought that like almost everything in the book, it was real, but it was just a little startup that died. There, I guess there is no paranoid Linux. Since then, I've listened to every Security Now podcast to try to be more secure. Also, very happy to say, because of my listening, I've helped my school. I'm homeschooled and take science classes out of my home at a local small school for homeschoolers. I helped them determine that their Wi-Fi network was compromised and helped them pick a new, more secure Wi-Fi router. Yay. So, help me pick a better solution for security for antivirus and what other software I need. Steve? Well, in the in, in the beginning of Zane's note, he it, it felt to me like he had gotten himself overly concerned. Yes. In, um, and and so I I wanted to address that because I do see that in in email and in our news groups, you know, people who really it's like the concern for security is consuming their life. They're afraid to go out of the house. They're, they're, you know, uh, or, you know, only want to do so between the hours of 11 and one when they're sure that it won't, the sun won't set too quickly on them. Um, And, and it's, so I, I just wanted to address that the, the issue of, of it being possible to to be so concerned about security that you're not having any fun anymore mm-hmm. and you know this should be fun um it's I, I all of the evidence indicates that you know there are agencies and individuals and groups that are taking advantage of of mistakes being made in the design of our computer technology as it exists today uh, for their own advantage and, and, and hurting other people in the process. There's a story that I'm going to share next week about a company, um, a, a uh, construction company that is suing a bank because they feel that the bank's security, they like the log on security wasn't good enough. And Five hundred eighty-eight thousand dollars was stolen from their account. Wow! As a consequence, so I mean, these things do happen. Um, but, but I, you really do want to keep some balance, I think. Um, um, so you know, the idea of of not using Windows in favor of something called paranoid Linux. Um, I mean, 
I know that there are people who enjoy being this focused on security, but I wouldn't ever promote the notion that it's necessary to be this focused on it um, because you still want to be able to have the freedom to do what you want to do. I mean, it's a little bit like you, Leo, having a problem with no script or like turning scripting off. You know, there we're, we're sort of in a gray zone. You know, you you need to be able to see sites in general that you're reviewing running the way they're meant to by the bulk of the population who do have scripting on. Whereas I and many security now listeners have said, wait a minute, I need a little more control. I'm going to turn scripting on selectively. When I notice that there seems to be something wrong, then I'll permit a site to operate. Mm -hmm. So again, you could, you could have somebody who refuses to ever run scripting, but then arguably sites that you need or want to use won't work at all. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, compromise, you know, yes, unfortunately scripting is a mixed blessing, but it's one that we need. So anyway, I just sort of want to respond to Zane's, it, it, you know, you know, he uses the word paranoia um, and say, look, you know, don't get yourself too scared about this. You know, I do. I hope that we strike a balance here during this last 216 podcasts of saying, look, here's the issues. Here's the facts. We want to let any, everyone decide for themselves what's, you know, where they fall in this spectrum of really concerned and, and not concerned at all. It's very easy to get paranoid about this stuff. Which, and, um, not, not surprisingly, takes us to our third question. <laughs> and by the way, just to answer his question about what security package, I think it's pretty clear from our conversation at the beginning of the show that Microsoft Security Essentials would be the right choice. Yes? Until we know otherwise. Yes, I, yeah. I don't want to say anything until... You know, the jury's in right. or out or back or wherever the jury's going to go. <laughs> but, um, yes, uh, I, I have high hopes. So far, so good. Yes. Uh, John in Ontario. Yes, this is the next one. Says, Ontario, California, by the way. Says, we're so silly. Steve and Leo, we have been using Mac OS 9 since 1998 with an open IP address. We are now on OS 10. We have 12 Macs on this via Verizon each with its own public IP address. Always have. For over 10 years now, we have no protection of any kind, yet have never, ever been hacked. I think all this paranoia about hacking is just that. Paranoia. And you and Leo just propagated the fear factor. And furthermore, why would any of us need your advice? After all, we're not harboring nuclear secrets or planned attacks on some geographic lo location. Would you two just get real? Wow. I'm, I'm hurt. Well, um, there's the other side of the spectrum. <laughs> I thought it was that's kind of head in the sand. This really anchors both ends. Yeah. Well, I, I, first of all, I would comment that, that OS 10 has a firewall and it's turned on. And so you do have automatically protection from incoming threats. You know, he's obviously not behind a NAT router. He says he's got, He's got individual IPs for each of the machines. And so each machine has a public IP and it's out there on the net. Well, uh, and that he's been doing this for what, the last 10 years? Um, I think that's great. Um, I it's would not, it's feel, kind of, it's kind of, I would liken it to somebody who says, uh, you know, I, uh, I never go to the doctor and I've never had any vaccinations and I'm just fine until you're yes. not. 
<laughs> yes. And, and here I am saying, yes, but if you take a little vitamin D every day, right. the statistics show that you're going to, you have much better prospects for the future. Right. And you're fine until you get hacked. And then, I mean, you know. You yeah. It, I mean, it absolutely is the case that these problems are real. If you put a Windows machine on the net with its own IP, with nothing protecting it, it will get commandeered. You know, security researchers do the experiments. There's just so much junk on the Internet. Now, it's true that he's in a better position with Macs than he is with, with PCs today. But we know that that's also a moving target, that, that as Macs become more popular, we're, we're seeing um, a greater incidence of acknowledged potential problems with Macs. So I should point out, though, that if he, if, if he had done this with a Windows 98 machine, he would indubitably been hacked at this point. Yes? And may not have known it. Um, may, you know, may not know it. It may be hacked it, now. We don't know it. Exactly. I mean, it's it's difficult to say. I, I it's clear that it's clear. You know, we, we talked last week about what's the relative security of different OSs and agreed that it, they're all soft. They're all softer than we wish they were. They've all got problems of different nature of problems, different sorts of problems. You know, the, the open source model has some. The closed source model has its. They're different. But but fundamentally, complex software is going to have a problem with security and complex software is what we have in all of these systems today. You know, John's got very sophisticated software in his systems. So um, I, I don't know really how to respond to him, except that I would feel with everything I know, extremely uncomfortable with machines that weren't behind a NAT router that weren't behind, I guess I'm just, I'm used to it. I'm, I, I know how that technology works. I like the idea that it's protecting me from the outside. Um, I know what's out there. Am I paranoid? Well, um, it's certainly the case that, that millions of machines, windows machines were infected by the Conficker worm. I mean, we, right. we absolutely know that it's taken down whole systems of hospitals over in England. And, you know, that's not, that's not illusory. That's real. And, and we, we've, you know, people are having their machines infected by their actions as they click on links in email all the time. I mean, I've, I've on several occasions, I've had to spend a long weekend scraping stuff off scraping stuff off of people's machines and in some cases uh, there was one a, 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 a female friend of mine from Starbucks about 6 months ago I referred to it that I just you know I looked at it for a while and it was clearly just beyond recovery so I formatted the disk and set it up for her and she's now using Eudora and Firefox because I decided okay let's try to prevent this from happening again so these things really are out there i'm glad john hasn't been bitten by one yet and uh i hope if it does happen it's not bad because you know he clearly believes that for some reason he's listening to the podcast but but he believes that that we're um a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy and i don't think that's the case we happened because of the need not creating the need I, I wouldn't feel too defensive and and and, and in his defense and it's kind of like we talked about with the last question there certainly is 
uh, it's, it can happen that people listen and go, ah, and just feel terrified and become an agoraphobic. And we're not trying to do that either. I think right. the idea is reasoned uh, information about the risks and you be the judge. Uh, I know, we're not, uh, we, well, first of all, we should say we gain nothing. Uh, we don't, no, neither of us make a security program that we sell. We, we gain nothing by you being afraid. We don't work for an antivirus company. Um, so uh, we're, you know, I, and I'm, I mean, look, I'm not the security expert Steve is, but I'll, I'll speak for you, Steve. I mean, you know, you're just getting the information out there. Well, and I really do think we maintain a balance. I think, I, I think this, is not, yeah. this is not the, oh, go screaming for the hills no. paranoia. And podcast. I'm the guy who says, you yeah, know, what the heck? I'm not, gonna, <laughs> I'm going to run scripting. I'm not going to, you know, so. And, and the fact is today on a Mac, you're safer than today on a Windows machine. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about no, it. No question about that. Uh, Bob in Connecticut wants to know if we have uh, seen and have had a re- response to a an article. Uh, he says, I'm a longtime listener, love the podcast. Have you seen anything on this uh, one-time password being defeated? Here's a link to the occurrence I read about. The uh, title of the article, it's on technologyreview.com, uh, which I, is that the MIT Technology Review? Yes, yeah. yes. So and that's, it, a good, and I, that's a good, you know, a good journal. It's, the title is Real-Time Hacker Foils to fa- Factor Security. And uh, a person who we both know as an author, uh, Leo, Robert Lemos, oh, uh, okay. r- wrote the article. Uh, so this is MIT's Technology Review magazine. And I, I wanted to highlight it because, first of all, it's really interesting. And it, it, it's a perfect topic for, for us to discuss. And many of our listeners are apparently reading this or saw the link and said, hey, you know, what about this? Because we've talked so often about the strength of multi-factor security. Right. Um, and so the subtitle is one-time passwords are vulnerable to new hacking techniques. Mm. And so Robert Lemos writes, he says, in mid-July, an accounting manager at Firma, a construction firm in Mountain View, California, logged into the company's bank account to pay their bills using a one-time password to make the transactions more secure. That is to log in. Yet, the manager's computer had the manager's computer had a hitchhiker. A forensic analysis performed later would reveal that an earlier visit to a different website had allowed a malicious program to invade his computer. Mm. While the manager issued legitimate payments, the program behind his back initiated 27 transactions to various bank accounts siphoning off $447,000 in a matter of minutes. Quote, they not only got into my system here, they were able to ascertain how much they could draw, so they drew the limit, said Roy Ferrari, Firma's president. The theft happened despite Firma's use of a one-time password, a six-digit code issued by a small electronic device Every 30 or 60 seconds. Well, we know what that is. Um, Online thieves have adapted to this additional security by creating special programs, real-time Trojan horses, that can issue transactions to a bank while the account holder is online, turning the one-time password into a weak link in the financial security chain. Quote, I think it's a broken model, unquote, Ferrari says. Security experts say the banks and consumers alike need to adapt 
that banks should offer their account holders more security and consumers should take more steps to stay secure, especially protecting the computers they use for financial transactions. Quote, we have to fundamentally rethink how customers interact with their banks online, says Joe Stewart, director of malware research for security firm SecureWorks in Atlanta, Georgia. Quote, putting all the issues with the technology aside, if attackers can run their code on your system, they can do anything you can do on your computer. They can become you. So and I'm not, I'm not going to read the rest of the story because we've, we've got the gist of it. So what happened was that an infected machine went online and the software that was clearly sophisticated enough it it used the fact that a one-time password had authenticated the session, the logon session, to, and then this is amazing to me that this is, I mean, it's clearly possible, but, you know, that you would, that this manager would happen to have software that understood how to perform transactions behind his back using the credentials that he had a, the, the the transient logon credentials that he had established. I mean, it's it's chilling. And so, um, again, I would say to our prior questioner Joe in Ontario, California, who thinks this is all paranoid, that well, this stuff really does happen. So, so it's interesting because the title for next week's podcast is already the fundamentally broken browser model. Oh boy. <laughs> because you know wait. that's what we'll be talking about when you're in Dubai, Leo. Oh boy! Is that is because there was another um, there was another presentation at the Black Hat conference recently in in DC that that I hadn't been able to get out of my mind because it it talks about breaking SSL and it really doesn't do that. It 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 leverages the fundamentally broken model of using a web browser. For these sorts of things, and and that really is the problem. For example, if if there was more granularity in the security transaction, for example, if you not only had to use the one-time password to log on, but you had to use it every single time you performed a transaction, well, then this particular breach would have been prevented. Because the this breach was was hijacking the user's current state, their logged on state, and performing the, this work at the same time in the background that they were doing other things um, with their w- with their bank. But this does highlight the level of sophistication that that we've now arisen to. I don't think this. I, I would be a little less harsh in criticizing multi-factor authentication, except that this does say to us, this is the, if this is the level of sophistication, then we need to push multi-factor authentication even closer to what we're trying to authenticate. The problem was this was being used to authenticate the session. It's clear that in the presence of this kind of malware, we need to authenticate the transaction and, and get closer to you know what it actually is we're trying to protect we're trying to protect the the transactions plural yet and so we're assuming that the fact that they're wrapped in an authenticated session 
provides that protection. Well, this demonstrates that assumption is no longer valid. Now we need a per-transaction authentication, mm, which man. is a little more annoying. But if you've yeah. got the football right there, every you know, and you want that level of protection, you know, if if the bank said, "Do you want to authenticate per transaction or per session?" Now you know. You say per transaction, I want to have to provide. I want to challenge every single time I do something. I suppose there's still a window, though, even if you're doing it per transaction. I mean, as long as there's thirty uh, seconds, if that if their system is you know respect quick enough, they can get they can sneak in there while you're authenticated. Yeah, um, you you'd have to. I mean, I have to think about that. Whether something could, I mean, it would be authenticating. You you need something at your end that the that the malware couldn't get to that was tied to the details of the transaction. So you were basically something you provided the details of the transaction. Then the other end said, "Okay, I need you to sign the details of that transaction in a way that that the malware could not sign its own." transaction which would be different from yours so there are certainly ways to do this but again it, it's like whoa this clearly ups the ante yeah very interesting and, wow. and it's being done malware out there we now know is becoming that good and and so it does say uh, w- what the article went on to mention was that there that banks needed to provide consumers you know with like secure computers it's like well okay how's that going to work <laughs> Not, it's not clear how we get there from here. It's really, it just shows how uh, determined and clever bad guys are. When- well, and this actually, this does set me up. I didn't, you know, I ran across this in preparing today's Q&A, but I mean, this sets me up for next week's discussion of the fact that, unfortunately, convenient as it is, remember, this all kind of happened to us. You know, we had browsers that were going to allow us to, you know, look at static websites. And then it's like, oh, well, we can submit information. We can use, you know, forms and and the get and the post commands to send stuff Ooh, back. Yeah. Suddenly mm-hmm. now it's interactive. Yeah. And then and then the banking said, oh, we really don't want to see you. So because it's expensive for us to right. hire tellers, so we're going to automate all this and put this online. And besides, we've been told that SSL is safe. Well, yeah, SSL is safe. You know, I mean, well, we know that there are caveats even there, but but so. The problem is this notion of using something as convenient as a web browser is really broken. And, and next week, we're, we're going to talk about some very clever approaches that, that demonstrate how broke, just how broken it is. Yikes. Yeah. Question five, Jacob Theobald in San Francisco. He wonders about the security of Internet Explorer tabs. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, of the IE tabs Firefox plugin. That puts IE in Firefox. Right. Recently, by the way, I don't know if you saw this, Google put Chrome inside of IE saying, IE is never going to support HTML5 well enough for us to use Google Wave, so we're just going to put a plug-in that puts Chrome in there. Um, For people who want to keep using IE but not give up Firefox, this is the same in the other direction. Hi, Stephen Lee. I've been wanting to ask this for a while but never got around to it. Uh, I've been using this i.e. tabs Firefox add-on. From the looks of it, it can switch a specific tab to use the i.e. engine to view web pages. 
if, if you're in a case where you need IE, uh, like Windows Update, for instance. Could any security vulnerabilities that affect IE affect Firefox through the use of this add-on? Absolutely. Yeah. This is exactly like the problem of using the HTML viewer, which is IE, right. Right. In, in Microsoft Outlook email. You know, the, the infamous preview pane where you just select the, the email and it comes up in the preview pane. That's all it takes if, if you happen to be viewing malicious email for, for something to get a foothold in your machine. The, the, the idea is that, and this is Microsoft's whole, it started with Olay and uh, became ActiveX. The idea is that the application has become basically sort of a window, literally a window frame and controls surrounding the, the code which displays the content. So what essentially what Firefox is doing with the, the or the, I should say the IE tabs add-in to Firefox is doing is it's instantiating, creating an instance of the full Internet Explorer viewer that just happens to be wrapped with Firefox's borders and controls and window dressing rather than IEs. But it's in no way more secure. It's, it's sort of the lowest common denominator approach. So, so yes, I can, I can see the, the appeal. And I, so I would, my, my advice would be use it as little as possible. Use it for Windows Update hmm. and only for websites that you trust that won't run in Firefox. You know, I have IE, even though I'm exclusively using Firefox now, I use IE uh, to run Windows Update, and that's it. And very rarely I'll see, I'll see some site that just is really badly written that absolutely requires IE. And I mean, I call it badly written because, you know, they're really restricting themselves to a subset of the Internet. You know, I, uh, Firefox is increasing its market share all the time. And for good reason. So, yeah. yes, it's absolutely, you are vulnerable to all IE vulnerabilities. If anything uses that IE um, ActiveX control, whether it's email or or any other browser who says, oh, look, you get the benefits of both. It's like, well, and the liabilities of both. Right. Of course, IE is always running on all Windows machines. So, um, you know, that's why, you know, if you look at HTML email or anything, it's always, always there. The engine's always there. Hard to get away from it. Uh, moving right along to a... It's not, it's, it's not in my system, Leo. You, how do you get rid of it? I just I use Eudora, which doesn't use oh, IE I see. at all. Yeah, but IE, the, if you've got Windows, the, the, the rendering engine is there all, at all times. And it's, it's kind of hard. I'll give you an example. It's kind of hard to know when it's being used. Quicken for a long time from Intuit, and may still for this matter, would embed an IE window inside its Quicken, uh, so that you could see online data from the Intuit website. Yep, and in fact, there have been programs that will say, the, oh, it, you know, you re requires um, Internet Explorer version 6 to be installed right. in your machine in order for something entirely non-web browser-y right. to work because they're, they're relying on that component. So I, anyway, I, w I wouldn't say that it's always running but it's certainly the case that um, that it has the ability to pop up literally when when you're not expecting it. Yeah, it's almost always right, <laughs> Donald. 
Well, well uh, okay, I'll give you another example. Uh, uh, when you're using Explorer to explore the hard drive, and you enter in a, a URL in that's in that Explorer window, it will then open the web page. Ah, uh, yeah. Isn't Explorer? I mean, I don't know what the difference is. IE and Explorer. Well, they're very different. So okay, so it's just the rendering engine just says, "Oh, never mind. I'm going to use IE instead to do this." Right. Okay. They're different programs. Right. But they have a direct link. <laughs> they do. Donald Burr in Santa Maria, California, has some feedback to, an- to our answer. Should I run my own server? Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. In, well, in fact, he says, in your listener two feedback weeks. two weeks ago, in your listener feedback uh, number 75 episode, you answered Dax Mars' question. I love that name. And I do. he says, and I love it too. About running his own server at home, your response recommended going with the most secure distribution of a Unix-like operating system, and specifically mentioned NetBSD or FreeBSD. While I agree with the overall concept of shying away from Windows, I would instead recommend that he goes with a Linux distribution, specifically one based around Debian's package management system. There is, for example, a version of Ubuntu specifically tailored for servers that would be ideal for this. One of the most important things that a person as a server administrator needs to do is to keep up on software updates. I'm sure you'll agree with me on that. However, unless I'm mistaken, updating a BSD system is difficult and involves having to rebuild the kernel, user space tools, etc. And even for an intermediate level user can prove to be a daunting undertaking. Debian-based distributions, on the other hand, have a very easy way of upgrading the system involving only two shell commands, apt-get update and then apt-get upgrade. These two simple commands will download the latest version of all Linux tools, including any third-party programs you may have installed, like Apache, uh, the web server, or the MySQL database. The Debian and Ubuntu folks are very proactive when it comes to incorporating the latest security fixes into their packages. Just my two cents. Love the show. Love that spin right. Has saved my bacon on more occasions than I can account. So that's well, a, I, that's a good, a good point, but there'll be a debate a very- over this, I think. I think it's a very good point. Um, well, you know, the, the issue of OS is, is religious. You know, yes. everybody has their own for their own reason. Um, and so I, I wanted to, to share Donald's recommendation, and I don't disagree. I mean, I've used Debian Linux, and I like the, the, the packet manager that Debian has. And um, obviously, Ubuntu is, is a is a very popular solution as well. So, you know, one thing that I might add is that for a non-Unix or Linux user, someone who's moving from Windows, um, all of this stuff is a lot less obvious and easy to use than Windows is. And so one thing that may, I mean, I, I guess I feel a little bit like it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, except if you've got some friends who have a bias or experience, it's, it could ease the transition a lot to say, well, you know, what are you guys using? I'd like to use the same thing. So I have someone I can call when I have a question. Right. Yeah. That's of course true. Um, but you, but didn't, was it you or was it, no, I think it might be Randall Schwartz who, uh, prefers, he says the most secure network operating system is, NetBSD, or I can't remember. Well, and that takes us into question number seven. Oh, well, let's move along then. <laughs> <laughs> let's move along. OpenBSD. Randall says OpenBSD. He's in our chat room because he's getting ready for a, a security, or rather, a plus week. Then he's going to like question number seven. All right. Donald. No, that was Donald. This is Bob Carname in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. 
What do you have against Theo? <laughs> okay. I should have read that. Uh, just listening to the latest episode 214, at one point you recommend running a web server on the securest version of Unix available. I certainly agree with that, especially versus any Windows OS. But you only mentioned NetBSD and FreeBSD. What about OpenBSD? A little while ago, I did research on what OS to try to use uh, for some applications where security is particularly important. I eliminated Windows. I eliminated Mac OS. And I eliminated Linux. I don't think I uh, need to explain any of that decision-making process. I thought about Sun's offerings, Solaris, I guess, uh, but decided that since I'm a Mac guy, I probably have an easier time acclimating to one of the BSDs, Berkeley System Distribution. I read the mission statements for the big three. FreeBSD is all about getting everything to work. Lots of applications ported to FreeBSD, lots of device drivers, that sort of thing. NetBSD is mainly about working on anything. You could probably install it on an abacus, he says. Finally, OpenBSD claims itself to be, among other things, secure by default. That last statement cost my, caught my interest. I read about what they claim to do or try to do, especially uh, and strictly formatted code that makes it easier to audit the, uh, and auditing code for correctness and security even before a flaw or exploit is known. That's the attitude I was looking for and wish everyone had, and I didn't see any reports that OpenBSD was not doing as they claimed, so I'm going with it. It's a little more difficult to do certain things, but I, like Probably most Security Now listeners understand that it's necessary to give up a little bit, sometimes a lot, of convenience for the sake of security. I don't consider that a hardship. The classic example is that when you enable Apache in the default install, it runs chirruted. So does bind, by the way. So creating dynamic database-driven websites takes an extra bit of planning and work. Anyway, I'm not associated with the project other than as a user, and I don't know Theo, who Theo, by the way, is the guy who wrote it. But so far, I think OpenBSD is great. Should I? Maybe not. Is their claim of proactive security all hype? What have you heard? Should I panic hard? Thanks. <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting because his comment parallels some dialogue that uh, popped up immediately in um, the GRC news group, the Security Now news group, saying, hey, wait a minute. What about OpenBSD, Steve? Why didn't you talk about that? And again, it's just a matter of familiarity, I'm, which by no means means I wanted to slight OpenBSD. I just ended up first using FreeBSD, and that's where I'm comfortable. And I've looked at NetBSD and just sort of haven't gotten around to OpenBSD. I haven't needed to, but I absolutely wanted to give its, it its due and its moment in the sun. So, uh, And apparently Randall Shorts is an OpenBSD uh, advocate yes. also, so we, that says a lot for we, it. We've had this conversation, Randall and I, and I think that, I'm trying to remember, and I've asked Randall, but... As I remember, uh, there have been two exploits, two exploits total since BSD, OpenBSD was created. Which is a phenomenally low number. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, yeah. So that kind of obviates the whole need for patching. And remember, patching's, you know, if you've got exploits, you've got to patch. But patches, as frequently as not, if, if, I think, introduce other exploits. So patching isn't, isn't the magic panacea either it would be patching is something yes patching is something that unfortunately we've all become abused into accepting but it doesn't i mean it's it you'd much rather have something that didn't need it right than than something that was like oh look how often we're patching aren't we wonderful right, like, oh, right. okay patching can just introduce new problems absolutely um, so open bsd uh yeah I, I think that uh everywhere everywhere i've heard that's kind of the everybody says yeah yeah oh, it's true Theo's yep, got it so right I, 
So by no means did I mean to exclude it by having just said, uh, you know, when I did uh, free BSD or net BSD, open BSD. Right. Emil in Denmark, our question number eight, found an overlooked feature in TrueCrypt. Hi, Stephen Leo. I think I found a feature in TrueCrypt you have not previously mentioned in security now. TrueCrypt settings, preferences, more settings, system encryption. When pre-boot authentication is configured, the login screen says TrueCrypt Bootloader and asks you to enter your password. But with this menu item, you can change this however you like so that no text appears at all. Or you can write a short custom message such as, I like, I like <laughs> I this, this one, <laughs> Missing Operating System. Oh. I guess you could even write your password as a message in case you forget it, but that's not a good idea. It could still be technically possible for an attacker to prove that TrueCrypt is installed in the drive, but I think this is a cool feature, perhaps even worth mentioning in the show. What a great idea. I just, I, I thought it was so clever. I mean, you know, all of, all of us who have used computers for a long time are, you know, we see our life pass before our eyes when you boot the system and it comes up missing operating system. It's like, oh, <laughs> what now? Or, you know, and sometimes you'll move a drive to a different machine and it'll be, you know, the wrong, it'll be a primary on one machine and a secondary on the other. So you, you, there are various reasons you can get that. But frankly, you know, if I turn the machine on and I, it said TrueCrypt bootloader, I go, oh, okay, uh, now, now I know. Now I know something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and again, we, where no one is endorsing security through obscurity, this isn't that because you still have all the security that you would have if it loudly proclaimed itself to be TrueCrypt bootloader. But instead... You've just sort of thrown everybody right off the scent right. by saying missing operating system. I was like, oh, it's like, don't even bother going any further. There's a difference between security through obscurity and not giving people more information than they need. That's why you say stealth your ports. Right. Why volunteer information? Why volunteer that TrueCrypt's installed? In fact, <laughs> I have a I have a buddy who's got his 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 Wi-Fi routers uh, uh, SSID set you know the the beacon that you can see whenever you you browse like web uh, like uh wi-fi in your area he has it set to norad missile command or something <laughs> and- <laughs> that, now that could go both ways uh, that might encourage somebody to try to break in i just think if someone says oh crap i'm not gonna yeah, touch gonna that, that. They're, they're, they're gonna get me uh, yeah yeah so I just like missing operating system. That's classic. <laughs> like That's it. just beautiful. I wanted to give give Emil a little nod of the head for that one. That's really good. Bobcat in our chat room says his his TrueCrypt login uh, boot login is NT loader is missing. <laughs> That's exactly. another good one. <laughs> Make it look as much like the real thing, right? Uh, Paul Dove in Hampton, UK. Question number nine. Is, our penultimate question is use is using WAN router administration. Well, we were talking about disabling that, and we said, well, who? Who would use that? Who would ever want would that? Ever. Um, and in fact, he's quoting you uh, from episode 214 saying, quote, it's very distressing, Leo. If there are still routers that have WAN admin on, I mean, nobody needs it. Well, Paul says, I have three routers connected in a Y with a WPA router on one branch of the Y. This is what we talked about as the way to do WEP securely. Yep. The ultimate Wi-Fi security. Yeah, so he's got WPA one. Web router on the other, and then they are connected, the two of them, to a third router. He says, I only have the web router so my kids can connect their Nintendo DS. That's exactly why you do it. Yep. Uh, I would never want to connect any PC to this router, so I have it set to WAN admin so that I can change settings by accessing it externally. 
but I'm still behind the router and firewall at the base of the Y. Uh, and when I'm accessing the settings this way, I don't think there's any way data could get from the web device to my main WPA network. Am I safe? I thought that was a really interesting That's and great use. reaction. Yep. Yes, um, he is certainly safe. What you don't want is the Internet to have access to your WAN admin, because without other provisions, there's there's nothing to prevent someone from just pounding away on its login trying to get in. But here, he's using... He's got WAN admin on one of his internal or interior routers so that he's able to access it from outside of the web protected network, but still inside his own local area network because that's inside the router, which is interfacing that Y to the Internet. So, yeah, I thought that was a great reason and he should be completely comfortable with that. There's you know no way bad guys can get to his his WAN interface. And certainly no way anybody on the website can get to it either. So it being enabled is fine. Although you definitely want to make sure that you've got a very strong password on your, your LAN side login for the WEP router because, because we know how broken WEP is. And so by catching some packets while your kids are using their Nintendo DS they would be able to get the web key and that would allow them to try to log into the web router on the LAN side using the the website the web interface so you would absolutely want to protect that yeah I mean, it, it's already more broken just because it's using web than 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 uh, wan administration right i mean right yeah right you, that's a very good point that, that's a good way of looking at it. that's the bigger concern right. than, than, than the WAN side being exposed, which is only exposed internally. So I thought that was very clever. Good. Our last question. <laughs> Steve from Dave and Max in the UK, and they want to know, can we watch security now after it's been broadcast? I know you guys broadcast it live. Yes, we do. We do it every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Actually, Leo, that's right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 11 a.m. Pacific which is 1800 British standard, uh, actually British daylight time. Um, but is there, is there any way I can watch the episode after it's been recorded? We're in UK. So due to the time difference, we're unable to watch security now live. I'm sure other issues, is, listeners would like to watch live after it's been recorded. So keep up the good work. We'll I have good news on that count. This was one for you, Leo. Uh, and I, I we're kind of pre-announcing it. So, um, it's not ready yet. Right now, the way we do security now, we do record it live. And as with all our shows, uh, you know, you can you can watch that live recording. You know, think of it as a spy cam into my studio, although it's a little fancier than that. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, in fact, replay it again and again uh, later in the day. So Wednesday evening and <laughs> Steve, 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 <laughs> Steve's playing with the camera now. Wednesday, <laughs> Wednesday evening. And uh, Thursday in the early morning hours, uh, you can probably catch it with other shows being rerun. But that's not very satisfactory. So the, so uh, some of our viewers have for the last year been capturing the flash and putting it on uh, their website with, with our permission and encouragement, odtv.me, odtv.me. So you can, in fact, go back and watch reruns there. But we have, uh, we're about to announce in a couple of weeks at Blog Room, <gasps> we're going to announce this. What, 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 what? That uh, we're going to offer video of uh, this show and our top five shows and then slowly roll out video of all the shows, both for download 
on uh, on iTunes or you know whatever you use for your podcatcher, the Zune. You can watch it on the Zune HD. That will be one way you can get it. But we're also uh, working with a company called MediaFly. They're going to put it on the Roku box. I know you know about the Roku Netflix player, so you'll be able to watch us. I'm and I think we're you know, again. <laughs> this is a pre-announced, so so we I probably shouldn't even say this, but I think you'll be able to watch both live or after the fact. So you, so on that Roku box. And then we're going to slowly roll it out on a lot of platforms. Um, and my hope is, my plan is that on whatever platform it rolls out, whether it's your portable phone, your television, your TiVo, whatever, that you'll both be able to watch what's currently live or what was live so that you have kind of the choice. Um, you know, you can either, it's like on demand or live. Uh, so that you would be, Dave and you, Max, you'd be able to go there and you say, well, I, I missed the live broadcast, but I want to see it again and be able to press a button and be able to watch it. Now, Roku's not available in the UK, so... Um, this, but this is coming your way soon, and it we're re, boy we're we're rejiggering everything to make this possible. We're spending a lot of money. We have to get a SAN device. We're going to change all of our editing from just audio editing to audio and video editing and Final Cut. Um, you know, we've we've had our little our squirrels, Colleen and Eric and Tony, working like crazy to get this ready, and we hope to have it ready in the next few weeks. So we'll let you know when that is available. But yeah, this will be. I, uh, I'm pretty sure this will be one of the shows that we roll out right away. Um, I can't remember what the list is, but we're it, it, it's certainly on the list. We're just where nice where is security now in the ranking? Because once upon a time, Twit was number one. Twit's number one. We were number two. Are you we were still? This, this was the second show. No, I think it's Twit, MacBreak Weekly, and Windows Weekly in a close tie. Okay. Net at night and security now and a, and a tie for for a third place. And uh, and then uh, actually, you know, Twig, our newest show is now, I think, in third place. Uh, wow. It's going up very fast, yeah. Um, and that's this week in Google? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, that's that's because of the subject matter, but also because of our hosts. We have Gina Trapani and Jeff Jarvis are so good and have lots of fans on their in their own right. She's neat. I saw I saw a replay of that. I'm yeah. thinking, okay, who is this and what show is this? She so. created Lifehacker. I mean, Gina is like, you would love her. She's a programmer. She's a productivity guru, just a great person. She lives in San Diego, kind of down your yeah, way. She's neat. Yeah. So uh, it's our it's my goal to do two things. I think in the long run, I mean, the audio podcasts are what got us started, and they still pay all the bills. But in the long run, it's my goal to create a 24-hour kind of CNN for geeks that all of our shows will be part of and additional shows, you know, almost 24-7, as close to that as we can get. And would would always there be live streaming, or could you could the, the- could it be that you would end up just being download on demand shows? I, I want to keep doing live streaming because uh, I think that the idea of being able to just go somewhere and press a button and whatever's on you watch. And mm-hmm. that would make us more, for instance, in about 20 minutes, we're going to check in at one o'clock. We're going to check in with the New York Times and see what they're working today. So I want to be I want to have a live kind of mm. network that you know whatever's going on, you're always kind of apprised of what's right now because people like live. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we realize that if we do it live, everybody's gotten conditioned to being able to TiVo everything on television. So we've got to make it, you know, some way for you to be able to get the stuff after the fact. So we'll make it. That's that's really what's going on here. That's why we're doing the, the downloads. I think it's perfect. It sounds like it gets those bases are covered, Leo. Well, it's a it's a project. It's quite an investment financially uh, and uh, in terms of uh, manpower. You know, we got there, there's now seven full time people working here and a, and a goodly number of part timers. So um, it's expanding very rapidly. But I won't ever be as big as uh, as you. you. You you are the cautionary tale on getting too big. 
I don't ever want to be so big that I have to go to meetings all day. And no, especially when your meetings have meetings. <laughs> there is a staff meeting now in about 15 minutes, however. <laughs> we now have a staff <laughs> meeting. Uh, of course, when you say all hands, we can fit around a small round table. So it's not so bad. <laughs> That's good. Well, um, we're going to talk next in two weeks since you're going to be right. in some big high, highest building in the world in Dubai. Um, when Alex Lindsay and I are talking about the fundamentally broken browser model. Ooh, that'll be fascinating. And then I'll be back in time for Q&A number 77. Yep. And then we're going to do a really neat episode about the innards of JavaScript and oh, that's gonna be its fun. fundamental problems with our, with our friend John Graham Cumming. The creator of the Geek Atlas. Yeah. He's the guy, too. And we interviewed him on Twitter who uh, uh, got the apology from the British government for Alan Turing's prosecution. Really neat guy. I love Very John. cool. So that's going to be fun. I can't wait for that. Steve, always a pleasure. Don't forget, Steve's at GRC.com. That's the place to go to get your copy of Spinrite. And all those free, wonderful utilities that Steve is just cranking out all the time. GRC, that's short for Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. And if you go to GRC.com slash feedback, you can give Steve questions for future episodes. Uh, Please do. Yeah. And you, you can also get 16 kilobit versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired. Full transcripts and show notes, too, uh, there, as well as on our wiki, wiki.twit.tv. And our friend feed conversation pit. That's friendfeed.com slash twit dash conversation. Follow along there in real time. Uh, in our chat room. Let's not leave that out as long as I'm giving you everybody irc.twit.tv. Steve, we'll see you next week. I won't, but everybody else will see you next week. Thanks, Leo. Security now.